Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Jay Kumar. He is the SB SVP of Growth at Invisible Technologies and his purpose at Invisible is to partner with organizations to unlock operational blockers, preventing them from unlocking market share. And he has been doing an epic job of that recently. So welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks for having me, Sir, and super excited. What is the most interesting thing you've learned about how to enable artificial intelligence at big companies recently? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think this entire space is very nascent and still a space that's nascent for us and we're stepping into. The biggest thing that I think has sort of stuck out to me is organizational misalignment on how to leverage this technology. And I think a lot of the conversations that I find myself in right now, um, what I'm seeing is fissures between business teams and technical teams, between the value of AI, the applications of AI internally. And I think there's tremendous appetite for the benefits of this technology, but not a lot of shared mutual understanding and clarity around ways businesses can actually derive value. And also in a way that is aligned to the their respective strategic objectives uh, and actual strategy. And it's been an interesting thing to navigate um, and, to, and, to, and be a part of. Uh, very interesting. Um, so and it, it, how does hype play into that? Because it seems like we've just had this huge amount of hype and then this is going to change everything. But then when we actually get down to it as to how the things are actually changing, like where is the gulf between the hype and the actual implementation? Yeah. It's um, the way I think about this, it's almost mythological in nature, right? There's a lot of benefits of it's sort of AI has always been around. AI just didn't suddenly come around across the release of ChatGPT. And I think what's sort of happening is there's sort of a conflation between the purported benefits of what AI can offer and what the actual capability of the technology are and having a clear understanding between what both of those are. I just don't think most folks have it. And so even if we think about um, organizations that are looking to develop, that are looking to use AI, there's everything from sort of how do you select the foundational model you should use? How should that change between different use cases? Should you fine tune the model? Should you not fine tune it? Do you need to fine tune it on your data versus not data and all those considerations? The ecosystem is very, is sort of fast. It's sort of, it's been nascent. It's 
very fast moving and there's been a large proliferation of players as of this moment over the past nine months or so. I think these sort of in isolation aren't, wouldn't be particular problems, but sort of when you have a really large sort of revolutionary technology that sort of hit mass scale in a fairly quick time frame, coupled with sort of a lack of understanding about the true capabilities of what that technology can do now versus what it theoretically could do later. And then sort of an unclear map about what your internal strategy are in terms of how these tools should actually play a role in your organization's ability to grow in your organization's sort of larger strategic mandates. I think what you get is sort of just a lot of mass confusion and sort of um, uh, herd behavior of two kinds um, of a, um, hey, we'll dabble around, we'll play around with this technology, we'll see what it can do in a very non-committal way or very strict and straight clarity. And I think we're probably more in the former than we are in the latter um, of organizations still sort of dabbling around with it, seeing what it can do, but very much not committing to actually um, um, uh, doing anything with this technology. Uh, uh. So what does it look like to fully commit? Like what, so let's take like a random company, let's say they've got 2000 employees. What would it, what would it look like for them to commit versus a company of 2,000, 3,000 employees that just plays around with it? Yeah, it's sort of having an aligned strategy, having a clear set of use cases internally where we can use the technology, having a clear protocol around the change management in place in cases where um, individuals are going to be displaced from their standard duties or are going to be up, mm. uh, uplifted and elevated to doing higher roles, right? So I think it's thinking about that all organizationally in a very nuanced manner, um, thinking about sort of what the talent gap is between the capabilities that organizations have internally um, and the capabilities that sort of organizations will need to have to fully use these technologies. And then all the way down to tooling and infrastructure. And I think the way I think about it is sort of, um, while not every company needs to be an AI enabled company, I think every company is going to, an AI, sorry, rather than every company needing to become an AI company, I think companies are needing to move to be AI enabled, right? Just with the advent of cloud. It's not like Walmart became a cloud company, but Walmart became cloud enabled. And so when I think you have these foundational technologies, it's really about how do you fold them into existing workflows in a manner that gives the benefits of the technology, but doesn't require large organizational pivots in terms of like business models or large sorts of infrastructure. And I think that's really a space that we're hoping we can play in. Um, through leveraging the capabilities that we've developed over the past eight years and being able to sort of create these um, uh, workflows for organizations that they can rip and replace with their uh, with their own without needing to sort of use these, um, without essentially needing to like change their entire way of operating. I think that's just a very large ask. Um, and that's just even on the enterprise level. I think if you go even lower into like the mid-markets or in the SMBs, um, uh, SMB is like that's an entirely different dynamic but where I think sort of the hype also comes into play is sort of um, right it, it's it's interesting how we have um, like goldfish memory about these <laughs> where um, up until a few years ago it was blockchain and then before that uh, or no it was web3 then it was blockchain um, then it was digital transformation and the idea of and enterprise being digitally transformed. And I think we're 20 years into that movement and, and still not sure if we're still in the beginning or towards the end of it, right? So I think um, 
just having that clarity, I think at the business level and the objective level, I think is something that's super important just to, to help regardless of whether we're not in a hype, in, in a hype cycle, um, ensure that organizations that are people that are adopting these technologies don't adopt it for the wrong reasons, but are actually able, able amongst the few that are able to actually derive value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that specifically is, is how invisible can kind of play a role is essentially we see the strategic outlook. We can help people in that kind of, we had a great presentation yesterday about being sort of the sage mixed with the creative ability. And so our ability to kind of see the whole landscape might be very, very interesting. Now, uh, you know, you were talking about how these kind of hype cycles have played around in the past. We've had blockchain, Web3, digital transformation, big data, all these different things. And it all kind of fits into a theory that a lot of people talk about how all companies are essentially technology companies now, whether they realize it or not. And now do you, would you, how much do you agree or disagree with the statement that now all companies are AI companies? I think it depends on the dimension that you think that all companies are AI companies, right? I think um, the way I think about it is just in terms of strategic advantages and sort of I've been a big student, kind of like the martial arts and military strategy and um, in, and in sort of, there's sort of been this canonical idea uh, and consensus idea in some schools of military thought where um the way to develop strategic advantages is to develop incrementally better um, weapons. And I actually forget the name of the book I was reading, but um, uh, uh, but essentially military general, um, uh, career military, military general during the Vietnam War and um, into the Cold War. And if you actually like look at the track of military uh, technology, right? Um, everything from like the invention of submarines. Well, right, there are underwater torpedoes to then combat submarines um, with nuclear weapons, right? And then everybody else from nuclear weapons. I think what tends to happen is that when, um, I think organizations sort of, where I kind of bring that into the business setting is when organizations develop strategic capabilities, um, there's either like, I think there's broadly speaking, two sets of actions that can happen. Uh, like in a mimetic action where you try to replicate that set of that capability or you develop countermeasures that increase your strategic positioning in a way that uh, that turns it over to the other. And so I think companies are AI companies to the extent that they need to leverage AI as either a uh, mimetic strategy to retain their positioning in the market or as a counter positioning to develop capabilities around what, what um um, other organizations are developing. And I know that's fairly abstract, but um, given how we're, we're so nascent, I think that's probably where we're, we're in. But I think if they're, and I think a good example of that is probably what Chegg is doing, where um, they have a bunch of educated, bunch of people that are leveraged, they're on their platform. Uh, they've accumulated a large data set over the past 20 or whatever year, how many years they've been on the business, in business. And what they're actually trying to do is take all of the tests and question answer data that they've compiled over the past 20 years um, and build their own large language learning model off of that, that can then be an educational assistant or tutor. And so like, I would view that as one example of how you can take AI and use that to sort of like build a strategic capability, you know, for yourself. But I think as organizations move in the direction, like the, the value of that AI is going to be really predicated on how well that data is in the prepar- is for that given use case. 
And I think even if you look at some of the stuff that's happening in the healthcare space, where with the advent of these um, offshoot foundational models that are doing um, patient diagnostics, or even these um, larger, more private, mature companies looking to take uh, data that they've accumulated over the past decade and create their own LLMs, like I would see that as ways organizations can use strategic capabilities that they've that they ways organizations can strategically use AI to either create new capabilities or accelerate the gap between them and the market with the capabilities that they do have. Um, and I think in those situations, really what we're talking about is um, uh, a data moat being being really um, a differentiating factor. And I think that's the extent to which I think companies would need to be AI companies. But I also think there's a wide range of AI companies, uh, companies that are maybe more on the services side um, where it's not necessary to where the value of an, an AI tool, and I think it's easier to see this in more of a professional services setting, is being able to do the same task, either better, faster, cheaper, or increase the part of the work value chain that a given individual can do by allowing the AI models to take on the lower and lower tasks. And so if you think about like design agencies uh, to go like a completely different direction, it's you know, are there ways to use these multimodal image models or text image models or what have you um, to create the first 60 or 80% to do 60, 40, 80% of someone's job so they can do the next 20, 30%, right? And I think even if someone's still working 40 hours per week, what you get is more specialized work being produced. And I think that's probably more of a conversation I don't think is being had right now, but I think that's probably the part that I'm most excited about, whereas... Um, in a world where kind of uh, where AI is ubiquitous, you know, does labor become commodified, and what does that mean for the nature of work and how people play a role in that from a very ground level perspective? And then how does that roll top off? Um, Interesting. Um, so I would like I'm, I'm going to say something. I'm not sure if this is actually accurate or not. Uh, but from my impression, basically, the main thing about training, AI training, the, all the training that we've been doing, other, other training that other companies have been doing, is essentially it all boils down to creativity. So it doesn't necessarily mean you, you know, we do have engineers learning about these different models and developing them at LLMs, but to actually train the actual model using human beings, it all depends on the creativity of that person who's training the AI. Is that an accurate statement? I think creativity is a dimension of it. Um, I think what's more fair to say is that that a lot of these foundational model providers probably as early as 2021 have kind of hit the upper limit on the amount of data that's publicly available that they can use to increase model performance. And um, I think really that's been the driver of needing more curated, specialized uh, human data trainers over time, it's because the type of trained tasks now are more niche and more specialized. And so I think creativity is definitely one element. Another element that we're seeing is like specialization, right? So having people with domain expertise um, in the medical field, in the legal field, uh, in pop trivia, if you, um, and some of these just more niche capabilities um, to do some, some more of the training. Another 
another area of this has also been just in foreign languages as well, because mm -hmm. um, even though there's a massive corpus of data on the web, that isn't necessarily the same and consistent across languages. And so as we're looking at the proliferation of AI across other um, geographies, that's become an important need as well. And I think the question of creativity be somewhat becomes philosophical, right? Is something creative only because it's done by human, right? Or not? Uh, I'm not sure if we want to open that can of worms, but I think there is something to sort of having the ability to create um, data that may seem tendential, but it's still within the larger goals of training certain models, um, uh, right? Where like, maybe the way a trainer had thought about a certain prompt um, for SFT and RLHF may not be the common process that we would have established or a common process that was aware to, to the researchers that we're realizing with that our clients organizations, but still allows them to get the same goal, I think is certainly helpful. But um, um, I think the confluence of those three things I mentioned earlier are probably more of a stronger play than the fact that we have individuals who, who um, can be creative. And I think what we're looking at through time is the need for more niche and more specialized data curation. Um, and I think that also links into your earlier question about, you know, does every company need to be an AI company? I think to the extent that companies who are using AI um, uh, more as businesses looking at AI applications can curate data and use it as a way to train their own models that also becomes its own form of advantage in another way that I think organizations can develop these um, emerging strategic capabilities that differentiate themselves and, and sort of compound through time, mm -hmm. uh, right? It's not necessarily like, um, right? It's one piece of training data is better than zero, but 10 pieces of data are likely maybe not quite as much as 10 times better than one, but a thousand pieces of the right data could be 10,000 times better. And I think very quickly you hit an upper limit in terms of magnitude and data and just impact on performance. Um, and, and so I think that's just another thing I would consider mm -hmm. um, as organizations are looking to adopt these capabilities. This is so interesting. There's a lot I'm getting from this and we can go a lot of different ways. Uh, the key thing I'm getting is that it's going to change work. And it's not quite quite clear how it's going to change work, uh, but maybe my ideological disposition says that it's going to become a lot more decentralized, particularly as remote work comes into play as well, because remote work already requires a sort of decentralized, uh, you know, thinking. You're not actually in the same office together. Like offices as centralized mechanisms for doing work have basically disappeared for a large percentage of the audio, uh, thing, and now we've got this other technology which feels like anybody who uses it sort of gets a little bit of a superpower. Um, and a lot of the science fiction people are saying, okay, well, this is just like the little, a little bit of a taste of, of this kind of science fiction power. But that ability allows each individual consciousness to essentially create a sort of like vast, uh, much more uh, powerful sense of like agency. Um, and so it's leading to a lot of decentralization in work with all these other things. Do you think that that's accurate? And like, and because this could go very philosophical and maybe is a better stage for my other podcast, but uh, like the the last 2000 years have, in particular last 500 years have been very, very focused on centralization of power, centralization of the nation state and all these different things. And this 
technology, along with a few other trends inside of society, seems like it's actually offering a radical shift very quickly in terms of a more decentralized kind of way of doing things. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's one of the things I'm most fascinated about, right? And I'll take the philosophical lens for a moment, which is like this tension between decentralized and decentralized, which um, all the advantages I mentioned earlier accumulate under a centralized fashion, right? When you think about it from the organization's perspective. If you think about it from the individual's perspective about AI as an enablement and as an augmentation to allow people to do their best work, um, the interesting piece for me is both how these both will reconcile in practice, right? One would assume that um, if a corporation exists to ex uh, increase shareholder profits, the goal would be infinite productivity to do the same for less, right? Um, and you extrapolate that out. But actually what I'm finding through conversations is there's more appetite to, there's appetite to create internal pro efficiencies, increase overall employee productivity. There's a broader appetite to create these new revenue capabilities that AI opens up strategically. And so I think it's interesting to see how this will play um, over time as an observer. Mm. And I think at the individual level, um, th there are, I think there's definitely a re-evolution of uh, definition of work coming, um, right? Whereas even if you trace back the the concept of work, right? If mm. you go back as far as 400 years ago, I think the idea of knowledge work would be anathema to most people, even up until the industrial revolution. And I think there's been sort of been this late awareness that um, it's not necessarily clear that there's eight hours of productive work to do in a day. Um, and mm. I think if you couple that with this approach to remote and hybrid that's been sort of accelerated by COVID, um, this idea that there's certain forms of labor that can be commodified and there potentially is an opportunity to unbundle that, the commodified aspects of labor from like the key strategic value add roles that individuals are hired to do within these organizations. Um, I think there's a real alpha opportunity for organizations that are able to thread that needle effectively. And I think that's the space that we've largely been an early innovator in from having this remote first model from um, mm. thinking about things from a very systemic and process perspective. Um, you know, mm. most people can't focus on strategically hard problems for 10 hours a day, right? If you're in a sales role, you, um, you only have up until eight hours of, of productive time to interact with clients. For an engineering role, like over the long term, is there really 12 or 16 hours of coding work you can do per day? And I think if you look at the quality spectrum, there's probably two to six hours of real work that most knowledge workers have to do in a given day that requires your unique input. And then there's a certain amount of overhead that requires. And so um, I think things that I'm personally fascinated by that I think are, are large white space are just sort of how different organizations can maneuver beyond it can get the advantages of all of these, right? Of get the advantages of sort of the same work done at a lower cost, get the advantages of the most productive um, output from their people um, with like lower overhead meetings and right. I think commuting would follow one of that. And, um, mm. uh, and really at the individual level, I think um, on the invisible side, we're all here because I think we're fundamentally humanists, but can we really, um, I think the jury is still out whether there's been sort of studies that happened during the 1950s and 60s with the advent of sort of um, 
these technology um, technology sort of in in healthcare where uh, even with the advent of vacuum cleaner and the dishwasher and the laundry machine, um, people are spending the same amount of time on housework as they'd done before you had those technologies. And so, um, you know, do we run into a situation where, you know, we've taken down 40 hours of work to fix 20 hours of work, but we're still at 40 hours of work, or we've taken down 40 hours of work to 20 hours of work, the cup is still, you still have 20 hours left to do other work. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's something I thought a lot about, uh, particularly after joining Invisible and noticing that the more problems you solve, the more problems that, that, that it opens up to essentially to solve that you didn't even see because you were focused on these problems that were right in front of you. And all of a sudden it's like, and, and what you just said made me think that maybe there's like a human nature thing, which is that human beings themselves are uh, uh, problem seeing machines and they'll take where there are no problems, they'll create problems in order for them to feel like they're doing something. And that might just be the modern human. It might be, uh, but it, it does seem pretty, you know, I've traveled to a lot of different places in the world. It does seem that there are problems everywhere. Um, do, do you have any thoughts on that or should I uh, continue? Yeah, I think there, there's a um, there's definitely a paradox behind this, but um, I don't know if it's uh, it's uh, there's this paradox behind it. I don't know if it's Godelash or Bach. I'm also convinced that Godelash or Bach is one of those books people say they read without actually having read. Um, where um, in solving a problem, you always create another problem. Um, but in any case, it'll just be a fascinating thing to see how that plays out over time. Cool. Okay. So we've got kind of this decentralization to centralization to decentralization. We've got a large amount of data creating new capabilities that we didn't have before. Um, uh, uh, we've got kind of philosophical questions about creativity and AI training, AI enablement. Um, let's go into AI enablement more. Uh, so what does it fundamentally mean to enable a company to use AI? We've already touched on this a little bit, but what, if you have a couple of sentences on uh, what is the fundamental uh, thing that we're doing by helping companies uh, enable AI within their organization? What is it? Yeah. So our thesis fundamentally has been from day one that uh, most organizations bias towards purely people solutions or purely technology solutions. Um, and to put it crudely, um, default to throwing bodies at problem, whether it's over hiring, whether it's using um, uh, uh, heavily outsourcing to a large degree, or flip the other way and try to automate every solution to in their internal processes. Um, try to use the latest and greatest technologies from RPA to now AI. And what we fundamentally believe is that the best solution to help organizations scale and really operate most efficiently and really generate the most value is a blend of both. And so when we think about AI enablement, what we see is the need to have a blended solution of both people and AI to give businesses the true outcomes and the highest value outcomes that they can get from AI. And what that's looking like for us, sort of uh, philosophically and a little bit level down, is creating these workflows that you might associate with typical managed services firms, um, in some cases and not, and hiring the expert workers who have sort of the domain expertise in the skill sets to execute those tasks, whether it's co-payment verification for uh, for 
hospitals and insurance companies, whether it's um, claims and takes workflows, whether it's KYC workflows, whether it's um, processing menu catalogs for food delivery players, um, whether it's doing creating drage reports for the logistics industry and so go on and on. And leveraging AI to automate the parts of those processes and the specific steps that can be automated and then having humans in the loop. So both are operating, um, we get the best of both within each given uh, workflow and giving that to the organization. Then what we see is that um, even if organizations had all the resources in the world, all the ML expertise in the world, um, there's just no way they're going to be able to drive the full benefit of this technology across the firm. And then for most organizations, getting the ML experts at the price point and at the scale they need and within the time frame mm -hmm. is not going to be feasible. And so we see it as a tremendous opportunity to be a services provider to help augment these organizations and giving them the abilities and outcomes of AI without them needing to sort of build the infrastructure, hire the people, um, and run this internally themselves and spend a year or two doing it when we can give them the outcomes in two to three months. Um, and, and that's kind of how we think about it. And there's other things within that too, um, where we can help organizations that are actually, actually uh, looking to implement these models themselves and have chosen to take that path. Where through the expertise that we've developed from working with and training these foundational model providers, we can leverage that expertise and provide sort of a, um, sort of a, step-by-step -step process and sort of hand-holding through ourselves and preferred partners that we work with um, to help them efficiently implement the technology and get the, get true value out of it. Um, and that's really where we think about when we go to AI, when we think about AI. And it, I think, again, comes back to this idea of every problem you solve creates another problem, right? And so if you um, throwing bodies at problem and now you need a vendor management team, right? Um, and you yeah. need all these three functions that are invisible costs. If you are throwing engineers at problems, well, what happens when the process changes? Um, what's the infrastructure you need to support that, right? And and I think uh, we're really trying to centralize ourselves as being that one-stop stop, stop shop for all these business problems and being that solution so we can front all that overhead so organizations don't need to worry about and can focus on the things that they're strategically, um, uh, you know, uniquely capable of. Uh, to do and within their course expertise. Yeah, it's so wild because it, it makes me go back to thinking about, you know, like I'm staring at this computer screen and this computer screen is allowing me to have this conversation with you. And then Zoom has built all of this infrastructure in the background and all of it's based off of this idea that we need this computer with a, uh, a QWERTY keyboard or whatever type, other type of keyboard. And then we have different ways for getting the senses through the through the computer in a way. And, and it's all just like, solving this problem of how do you create this virtual world where you can communicate, but not only work, communicate where you can also crunch numbers. Yeah. It's like the bicycle of the mind that Steve Jobs talked about is essentially, it's just this like wildly uh, um, flexible machine that augments humans. And now we got this technology coming in that is all those problems that we solved with the computer have have this new thing that's going to come in and it's this is like a hard hard thought to actually make explicit but like there's something coming that's going to obviate a huge amount of what's been built in the last 20 to 30 years in terms of creating this computer do you, do you agree with that statement do you think that ai is going to lead to some sort of sea change in the way that we develop because my, and for my mind it's basically in five years 10 years i won't be interacting with software i'll be interacting well i won't be interacting with 20 different pieces of software 
all interact with one piece of software that will behind the scenes do the same thing that Zoom does and connect to all these different pieces and everything like that. Do you think that that's accurate, that that's where we're headed? Uh, I'm giving you the thesis for my venture fund at this, at this point. Yeah. But I think that technology is useful and to the extent that it allows us to climb up the ladder of abstraction, right? Where, um, like I'll illustrate it with like a very crude and off the cuff thought experiment as an example. Um, where, so I was an electrical engineer before I joined Invisible and was working on medical devices and physics and uh, a bunch of different things. And one thing that sort of impressed upon me about the tradition of science and engineering has been the idea of you build upon the shoulders of giants. And it's why can we do today, uh, you know, today it's very trivial for to take an Arduino um, and create these mini circuits in DIY home experiments and labs. Um, you can teach a seven-year-old how to light up an LED on an Arduino within 30 minutes or within an hour. Um, and that would have been a breakthrough 500 years ago. That would have taken someone 30 or 40 years of their time <laughs> yep. to have done that. But you that's assuming many different things would have been in place, right? Like just very narrowly about like how to light up a light bulb, or right? The idea of creating an LED. And I think where I think about this ladder of attraction idea when it comes to computation is the idea that, you know, in a land before we had, um, you know, any tools, it's like if you wanted to figure out what's 55 times 22, Right, <laughs> or fifty-five. That might be an easier one, but like fifty-eight times seventy-six, or, or some something like that. You would need to manually do that out, right? And then there were handheld computation devices that would reduce the processing time for that, right? Then you inevitably have the calculator. Now you have the computer. Now you have the supercomputer. Um, even when we think about like the history of the computer, right? There were computation devices before the computer. Um, there's a baggage machine, right? <laughs> this manual uh, idea to sort of create a manual interface to do computational tasks. And now we have supercomputers and it's each successive, um, I guess there's two ways to look about it. It's like each successive development across those lines of fields have facilitated certain things, right? It's not clear that, um, well, now that it's not clear, like there's also a point where it's like physically, like literally impossible to do to train large scale neural networks on a baggage machine, right? Like you're not going to, um, right? There's a certain amount of computational, a certain amount of innovation that needs to happen in the core components that serve that technology for that technology to even have a chance of being successful. And I think you can back that out to like different things, right? Like the Mac would not be possible without like the, um, I forget what chips they use, but uh, without semiconductor technology, um, we certainly wouldn't have a Mac with the vacuum tubes. And so when I think about your question about um, innovation in the computer being a bicycle for the mind, um, a thing that's interesting for me to think about the adjacent things that have been developing alongside AI and sort of these mm. things that have been along for a while, uh, a while like VR, um, like sort of effective computing, augmented reality, um, these new interfaces are being developed and seeing how the confluence of those things enable us to create something new where 10 or 20 years from now, it will have seemed inevitable. But if you like look back the arc of time, it will have only been inevitable 
with sort of the parallel developments that have been happening with this technology. And I think that's probably where we're most likely to miss uh, in terms of the potential impact of technology. It's like, what are these other things in the rates of development that are happening um, that through AI will will allow mm -hmm. us to, um, you know, have an even better outcome in some ways and probably worse in others. Mm -hmm. uh, the, and the clearest example for me of that is drug discovery. Because it feels like there's so many different things going on in biotech and medical science uh, in terms of uh, our understanding of what's going on, our understanding of all the neurotransmitters and all of these different things. And like the, I think it's computational neuro, neuroscience is the one where, and it's just like all these different things have been going on for 20 to 30 years. And now we've got this supercharged uh, AI, a machine learning kind of thing that can essentially create do you think like I had read something a few months ago that it was actually it had led it had helped somebody come to a novel discovery in this in this type of thing? How far away do you think are we are from uh, machine learning being a sort of creative machine rather than just spitting out tokens um, and 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 saying and recombining things? Uh, but maybe that maybe that but maybe that's all creativity ever was though was recombining things. Um, what do you think about that general sphere of, of, of discussion? It's actually funny because um, during the Cold War, the Soviets actually had published a book about creativity uh, in that they were attempting to systematize creativity, which is very ironic for ways I hope are obvious. Um, and uh, it was called, it's called TRIZ, the Theory of Inventive Problem Solving. Um, and the idea was, is that we, is that through the study of creativity, there's a way to create in systematized and organized approach for problem solving and analysis from studying the patterns of invention across patent literature. Mm. And there are a couple of takeaways from that, but one is like, is fairly platonic. This idea that there are problems and solutions conceptually that are repeated across industries and sciences. And so if you have the right mental map of at the meta level of what they look like, you could easily apply them into specific fields with the right domain expertise. Um, the second idea is like, there's this idea that the way these solutions evolved were replicated across industries and sciences. And so it's not just a problem solution pairs were categorically similar, but also the, the way they evolved follow a similar arc if you studied it looking backwards. But the third area, another area, which is also very interesting is that many of these innovations had ripple effects outside of the field that they were immediately developed in. And I think that's something we see today. Um, and so, you know, the, the analytical part of me would like to believe that with the right set of principles, whether it's TRIZ or some other methodology, you should be able to train a model to be creative. Um, the humanist part of me, and this might be my bias, believes that there's something more um, uh, yeah. ethereal to it. Right. And and there's a human limit that technology can't approach. And there's a human spirit that may be more apparent the more technologically uh we augment ourselves that uh still persists. And so you can uh it's like you can create the brain, but is it still a brain? Is it, you know, is it the mind, right? Like I guess is one form of phrasing that problem in a in a, in a separate way. But um so, yeah. so I, would believe yeah. I would like to believe that creativity can be approximated, but never achieved. Very interesting. Um, and I think we're now 
far enough into the show that if people are still listening, they can forgive us for this, uh, this uh, tangent that we're about to go on. But do you, so based off of that thought, do you think that the machines will have sentience and, or the, do you, and anything you've seen so far, do, do, is there anything to believe that we are creating a new form of sentience in these machines? Uh, and then I guess the further question is that, is that uh, when there may be some sort of integration event, which some people argue already happened with cell phones, smartphones, is that it's already integrated. The, the computer is basically integrated in all but all the, but the blood brain barrier. Um, uh, and then you could go back farther and say writing is also a form of of, of that kind of breaking that that separation between human and machine. Um, but what do you think about this? Are we creating a new form of sentience? Hmm. Yeah, at what level? Like, um, and the level of does having this technology invoke a new form of of um capacity to feel thinking of mm -hmm. cognition within us or are we developing a, are we increasing a technology's capacity to be sentient yeah so well i mean what a lot of people worry about is is agi well they, a lot of people are worried about it a lot of people are excited about it some people are in the middle um uh, but what a lot of people worry about is this kind of sort of like self self teaching ability that that it'll ability to teach itself. Um, but that's that's thinking and that might be feeling. It's mostly thinking. And what you said about feeling and thinking is a very interesting thought because if we feel and think, does that mean is that the root of our consciousness or is consciousness something further back from that? Um, and so so what I just said is that it, it, people are worried that it's going to start to train itself and educate itself faster than we can see um, and that that will represent an existential threat. Uh, and so, but I wonder, and this is an open question. I don't, I don't know the answer to this question. I was, I was confronted by somebody on Twitter about it. Uh, and so it got, it got me thinking basically about like, what, like, cause we don't know what consciousness is. Uh, we, we, well, we kind of know what consciousness is, but we don't know how it works. We don't really know what it is. We just have theories. Some people think it's in the brain. Some people don't think it's in the brain. Um, and so, but we're stuck in this dilemma of solipsism where we can't really know whether someone else is conscious. All we can really know is that we're conscious, that each of our individuals or selves are conscious and such. And so it's stuck in that dilemma. We also wouldn't be able to know when this, when, and if the machine somehow reaches a point of consciousness or sentience and whether that is a human-like sentience or something entirely different. Right. It also could be an anthropomorphizing of technology, right? Which is, um, ascribing human attributes to technology, I think there could be shades of overlap between them, but it's not necessarily the case, right? Like, and I think, um, I think the canonical argument for sort of the existential risk of AI is that even if there's a 0.00001% chance of an extinction event, um, the magnitude of that is irreversible. And so it should be treated uh, mm -hmm. um, as a high priority. I think my favorite answer that I've heard to this problem is like, can't we just unplug all the machines? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the, the way I personally think about this is that um, it's a moral hazard problem of bad actors. And um, there's bad actors in terms of training it. There's also like literal technology itself. Um, 
I think what I'm more concerned about in the near term is the risk of ethical policing of AI being its own form of bias. Uh, and we bend the technology to go away so it's not actually objective mm -hmm. to bias, right? Because if you're arbitrating standards between, you know, conceptually, of between what's good and not good in teaching machine that, that is some level of bias, right? I think there's some reasonable standards of decency we can all agree with um, as people, but if you extrapolate that to the types of data that should be used for training or not used for training, mm. uh, political preferences, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think that's just, I think that's probably more of an acute risk than we end up in like Terminator 3 or whatever. But when I think about the Terminator 3 scenario um, of, uh, of AGI that takes over, it, at some level, it's like, you know, it's we've opened Pandora's box, right? So open. Yeah, um, so we're unlikely to go back. I think halting it isn't going to be a feasible measure because all it takes is for one person to to not comply and, and then you have a problem. And not only one person, uh, one country. Um, like, because uh, yeah. as, as you know, the models are already out there, they're they're already spread across every every uh, regulation, every every national border, and so somebody's got a, a box in Paraguay with these 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 models running, and that person is probably going to be outside the jurisdiction of any one powerful nation state, um, and so like, uh, and and the more that that happens, and well, and this brings up to the question that. Is related to both of the things we just talked about the ethical uh, bias nature and also the terminator 3 scenario um which is the open sourcing of these models what is your take on the whole open sourcing of these models and will it happen i mean yeah. but will, will, this, who will win <laughs> just to answer your question before i think yeah. the best countermeasure is a risk mitigation measures of like what are the measures we can put in place in the risk rate of super intelligence that will still allow us to survive in the event of that, right? And it's like, how do we resilience proof um, our way of living, which may not be a consensus opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so the inventive, there is like AI super intelligence and like all the AI can unite against us. It can't usurp our, our, our way of living. And I'm not saying we need to go full Amish and like ride horses, but um, you know, you could easily imagine scenarios where that could happen, where you have, um, you know, even if you're using different models, like what's stopping all these models from colluding with each other, right? Yeah, I guess if the, the more philosophical part it gets, it gets the, the harder it gets to be concrete because then you could, like, is there AI human factionalism together? But in any case, but going back to your question, <laughs> to your question about uh, whether open source will win or versus closed will win, um, along what dimension? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, so, I guess the, the big thing for me is understanding whether the latest model that's most applicable to the most human beings in five years will be 
openly available to see behind the scenes what is what it's doing or will be closed behind a, a, a door. <laughs> I think just because a model is open isn't well. Mm -hmm. Trying to think, I answer the question. Um, I think what we'll likely have is a proliferation of models for different use cases to solve those. To the extent that they're open or private, if you look at what's going on today, it's more private models and open models, right? There's appetite for pro uh, open models because there's a belief that. Um, we can increase diversity, we can increase speed of adoption in number of use cases um, if essentially these models are in the hands of developers who are innovating. And then through some sort of Darwinian competition, you get the best use cases evolve through testing this out on the market, right? And it's like some extension of the invisible hand. Um, but so I think that's broadly true from like an adoption and, and use case perspective. I think the models that will win are mark or models that have this data advantage. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the question that's open for me is how much of that will depend on, I guess what it hinges on for me is it's less about the, whether the model is open source or private, but more about what's the data moat around the model. Mm -hmm. Models with a great data moat, regardless of whether they're open or private will be the ones that win. Um, That's because even if you have, yeah, even if you have what, yeah, because even if you have a, um, even if you're uh, using a private model or building a private model, but um, if everything's in the open and you have a data moat, you've just compounded the rate that you can uh, hit that use case if you have the right data behind it. So I think that's probably the more of the critical lever than the actual uh, accessibility of the model when it comes to usage cool. and i think opening is a good example of that but. can you, can you talk about the, about how they're a good example of it well i guess there's another thing about opening that's probably unique right it's like first mover advantages advantage uh, largely private model large amounts of training data largest active user base i believe out of all the consumer chatbots um i believe they have some way to take the data that they're developing and use that to train their model but that might be um very loose but i think the thing that they also have is the best interface so i guess the critical path but i would generalize that to a consumer scenario but i, I think the general path is like whoever has the best data moat um and uh in distribution moat um would, would probably win so well thank you so much for coming on the show how can people find out more about you and what you're working on uh find find you at invisible how can how can people get in touch um, yeah, just shoot me an email at j at invisible.co or you can connect me at my LinkedIn. Cool. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, sir. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.